the letter of Hebrews is a deeply pastoral letter. But I think sometimes we lose sight of that because we have to wade through some pretty deep theology in this book. And so sometimes it seems more like a letter written by a theologian, not a pastor. But we need to remember that the author of Hebrews is indeed a pastor. And he's walking the church through theology because what they believe matters for their faith and will change the way they live in the world. But he has one main pastoral aim. He, just, he doesn't want to just get them to believe the right things, as important as that is. His aim is to help them endure in faith. That's it. He wants to see them endure in faith, to have faith in Jesus, their great high priest, and to consider who he is and to pursue him day after day. And what we see in the way he talks about faith is that faith is not just an intellectual exercise. Faith is a disposition. Faith is an orientation of your life toward Jesus and a direction that you walk and a direction at times that you run, but it is a direction towards God himself. Today, we move into a chapter uh, which is often referred to as the Hall of Faith or the Cloud of Witnesses. It's a tour of people from the Old Testament who lived lives of faith, who embodied faith and give an example, a concrete example of what faith looks like for us today. Um, you might, if you've been a part of St. Peter's for a while, a few years ago, we actually did a sermon series on this chapter called Cloud of Witnesses. And we looked at every single person, one at a time, over 12 weeks. And if, if that interests you, those sermons are available online. That's not what we're going to do this time around. Instead, I want to consider the nature of faith. Because the author is challenging us. He wants us to endure in faith. But what is faith? We hear the likes of Richard Dawkins, who says faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Or we read news articles that um, tell of people abusing faith. Scandals or abuses in the church. People claiming to be of faith, but who seem to live completely contrary to the faith they profess. But then we read the likes of C.S. Lewis, who said... If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And we think there's something to that. So we live in a world where there's this confusion about faith and yet this deep longing in us to have faith in the unseen, to continue on in faith. And so this morning as we talk about faith, if you are feeling mixed emotions, maybe nervous, maybe excited, maybe uh, hurt, from the past or something you've read, or maybe eager to discover what faith is, uh, that's okay. Because the call to faith always meets us where we are, as we are, however we are, whatever we bring. And so there's one question I want to ask this morning, and it's really simple. What is faith? What is faith? If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't own a Bible, take one of our church Bibles home with you. It's yours. We'd love for you to have it. Everything will also be on the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. If you jump ahead to verse 6, the author writes, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What is faith? 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the definition of faith in Hebrews. It's not the only definition in Scripture, but this is the one we'll be working with this morning. And what we see is that faith is not mere wishful thinking. It's not stubborn optimism. It's not a blind, irrational, hoping for the best. Rather, faith is an anchored and thoughtful confidence about what is truly real. Faith believes in the unseen, what can't be perceived by physical sight. Faith sees beyond the material, beyond the here and now, as the author says. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Faith believes God exists. Obviously, this is a core part of faith. A few years ago, I was in Victoria for New Year's, uh, uh, Sydney to be specific, and my parents uh, took us all out for a New Year's dinner at their favorite Greek restaurant in downtown Sydney, which is just bumping on a New Year's Eve. And uh, we ate too much lamb and roasted potatoes and Greek salad, which I guess is just salad at that restaurant. And uh, when dessert came around, uh, my dad brought up faith. And, and I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and my dad still is not a follower of Jesus. And so when he brings up faith, I'm game. Let's, let's talk. And so I said to him, Dad, what is your biggest objection to faith? And without hesitation, without even seeming to think, he already was ready to tell me. He said, if God is almighty, why would he not show himself? And this is a struggle, not just for my dad, but for people here and, and likely for some of you. But we should not assume that if we could simply see God, that faith would follow. Sure, if we saw God, we couldn't doubt God's existence. That's true. But is that faith? Simply believing God exists because you have sufficient proof? Think about the Israelites in the scriptures. You know, the testimony is that they encountered God in undeniable and powerful ways. The Israelites who were delivered out of slavery, who encountered Yahweh, their God, at Mount Sinai, who saw God work countless miracles. If you could sit down with them and say, do you believe God exists? They would say, yes, of course God exists. They encountered God, but did faith follow? As the author of Hebrews has shown us time and time again, the answer isn't always yes. Often they fell into unbelief. And so you can have an encounter with God. You can believe in God, but that does not mean that faith follows. So when it comes to faith, believing in God is not enough. Many people believe in God. St. James even says the demons believe in God. And so if you have the belief in God, not only are you joining the majority of humanity, you're simply catching up to what everyone in the spiritual realm already knows. Look at verse 6 once again. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Yes, faith believes God exists, but faith also draws near to God. Faith is a conviction that drives the core of your life, that moves you in the direction of God. You want to draw near to God. You don't just believe that there's a God, but you draw near to Him and believe that He will reward you for drawing near to Him. In verse 5, uh, the author brings up Enoch, which seems really random. Who's Enoch? 
He's only mentioned one other time in Scripture, in Genesis. And if you want to hear me try to make a 30-minute sermon out of one verse, you can go back and listen to that. But Enoch, um, he, he's interesting. Everything's falling apart in this part of Genesis. The whole world is slowly falling apart. Often we think Genesis 3 is the fall, but the climax of the fall is Genesis 11, Babel. And so things are getting progressively worse and worse and worse, and no one's following God. And then out of nowhere, we read about Enoch, who walked with the Lord. And it was so pleasing to the Lord that the Lord let Enoch walk right into his presence. As Hebrews puts it, the, the Lord took him. He was, and then he was no more. Faith is not just believing in God. Faith is drawing near to God or walking with God. But there's one more issue with the question my dad raised. If God is almighty, why would he not show himself? It assumes that God has not shown himself. And while God may have not shown himself specifically to you in the way that you would expect, that does not mean that God has remained hidden. God has appeared. That's the whole point of this letter. The author's writing because Jesus Christ came into the world. Do you remember the introduction? Flip back to Genesis 1. The author writes, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. God came into the world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. God appeared in the flesh. And to make sure that we understand this, the author writes in Hebrews uh, chapter 2, that it was declared at first by the Lord. The message of salvation was declared by Jesus himself and it was attested to us by those who heard. You see, our faith is not devoid of reason. Our faith is not in fairy tales or myths. Our faith is not detached from history. Our faith is in an event that took place within history. That was witnessed and attested to people who met Jesus himself, who heard him speak, who recorded what he said, who saw him crucified, who witnessed his resurrection and passed this message on and on and on and on for two millennia now. But of course, this is a huge stretch. I get that. How, why should we accept this set of assumptions? This is a big leap of faith. I've often met people who sincerely want to have faith, uh, but you can't quite get there. Maybe that's you. you. You're not against faith, but you can't seem to muster it up in yourself. You feel you have more researching to do, more learning to do, more knowledge to acquire before you could take that leap or that step. And that's a good thing to do. It's good to seek after understanding. You should seek to learn all that you can about Jesus so that you can make a deliberate and thoughtful commitment to him. But all the understanding in the world, while it may help you some, it will never make that step for you. St. Augustine is helpful for us here. This is just a great photo. I wish I had that power. But uh, he wrote, Understanding is the reward of faith. Understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. Now, before we accuse Augustine of circular reasoning here, let's understand what he's actually saying. What he's saying is that there's no neutral place 
in the world and there's no neutral place in our minds. And if you say that's not true, you've just proved my point. We're always biased. We're always carrying around a set of assumptions about the world, about how things work. And these assumptions, these unconscious biases, they color the way we see things. They influence the way we reason. For example, to say that God exists or that God does not exist, that is a statement of faith. There's no way to definitively prove it either way. If we say we're agnostic, that we can't possibly know either way. That too is a statement of faith. How do you know that you cannot know? How do you know that you cannot know? What Augustine is saying is that if you work from the assumption or bias that there is no God, all the understanding in the world will never help you believe. But if you change that basic assumption, if you work from the belief that there is a God, if you take a step further and you put your faith in his son, despite all the questions that may currently be unanswered for you, understanding will follow. Understanding will come. Hebrews says, God rewards those who seek him. God doesn't want to remain hidden. God wants to be discovered. Whereas Jesus himself said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. When you draw near to God in faith, in other words, when you desire to walk with him and discover him, he will be found. I have two photos of myself that I love putting side by side. I don't know if you've ever wondered how uh, I went from this, you know, uh, jet dyed black hair, uh, singer in a screamo band, writhing on the floor somewhere in Manitoba, I believe, uh, to this, you know, wearing a cassock and a beauty sash. I don't know if you've ever wondered, how did that change take place? Now, right now you have two conclusions probably. One is like, Alistair's life has clearly improved, or it's gone significantly downhill. I guess it's a matter of perception. But I'd like to tell you about the transition that took place, about how faith came into my life and gripped me and changed me. When I was in my teens, I started... Um, reading thing, anything spiritual, anything from Wicca to New Age to Hinduism, uh, I would read everything and anything but anything Christian. I just figured Christians had nothing to contribute to the discussion about spirituality. <laughs> I had no reason for this bias. It was just my bias. But over the years, I started to meet more and more Christians who just continually defied my expectations. Christians who weren't hypocrites, Christians who weren't holier than thou, Christians who were surprisingly normal. And they would talk to me about Jesus in reasoned and thoughtful ways. Now, I didn't believe them, but I would leave those conversations with the impression that maybe, just maybe, they're onto something here. In my early 20s, as I said, I was a touring musician, and we would tour across Canada. And on one stint, we were on tour, and we discovered that the band we were doing about 10 shows with was a Christian band. I didn't even know what that was or that that existed, but they were all Christians in a screamo band, uh, and they were playing shows with us, and it was great. I was picking their brain about faith every night. And one night, we had a, an evening off in Victoria, and they said, what should we do? And I said, well, we should go ghost hunting. I didn't realize that was forbidden in Scripture, or if it was, I don't think. <laughs> but I just, they said, sure. And so we went to the Victoria uh, Golf Club in Victoria, and in case you're wondering, it is... Uh, the most common sightings of ghosts in all of North America is at that golf club. And we're walking in the middle of the night, like 2 a.m., ghost hunting, which means God can meet you doing anything. And 
I'm just asking these guys about faith. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about how you came to have faith. I don't understand how you got there. Help me understand. And, and before I knew it, I found myself desiring to have faith, desiring something. I couldn't even explain why I would desire it. The next day, I told my best friend, I think I'm going to be a Christian one day. And he thought I was playing a joke on him, and he still thinks I'm playing a joke on him. <laughs> and so around 2003, uh, my band, we were touring more, and we were in the middle of record deal negotiations, and, and, uh, which was exciting. And the label said to us, look, we would love to sign you guys. We just want you to get a better singer, which was great news for everyone but me, because I was the singer. And uh, so they kicked me out, and they signed the deal and went on to a moderately unsuccessful career. And, and I finally had to move from seeking understanding to faith in that moment. Because when my band moved on without me, I didn't have a plan B. I hadn't been to school. Here I was, 22 years old, with no backup plan, with, with everything in that bucket, my identity was a musician. I didn't even want to be anything else. I didn't know what to do next, and I felt hopeless, and I felt purposeless, and for the first time in my life, I would describe myself in this way. I felt lost. I didn't know my left from my right. I didn't know my front from my back. I didn't know what to do next. And so one night, I was driving home on the Pat Bay Highway uh, to Sydney to see my parents, and um, I just took my hands off the wheel. And I said, if there's a God... I need you. I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I need you to show up. And in that moment, I felt this small, still voice say, put your hands back on the wheel. Now, you might say that was just your survival instincts kicking in. That was your subconscious. Maybe so. But my experience, it was not that. It was this quiet and yet distinct sense that God was saying, follow me. So I, I drove where I felt this voice tell me to go. I left, right. And I ended up in this parking lot I'd never been to. And, and I felt like I was supposed to get out and walk into the woods. And it was 2 a.m. And in Victoria, there's cougar sightings all the time. I was like, I'm not walking into the woods. And I finally mustered it up. I walked into the woods and it became progressively darker. And as the clouds covered the stars and I couldn't see where I was going and moon was covered too, I just stopped. And it was just too dark to go any further. And I heard that same small voice again. Even if the darkness overcomes you, I'm with you. And it was such a foreign thought. I thought, I'd never think that. Now, you might be thinking, oh, I'd love to have that conversion moment. That wasn't my conversion moment. That was just another step in my story. What took place is uh, a week later, my vocal instructor gave me the Purpose Driven Life, which I found out later is a man wearing a Hawaiian t-shirt wrote it, which was very disturbing at the time. I've come to very much appreciate that man. But I read that book and I discovered... Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, light bulb. But even then, it's not like my life changed overnight. I want to stress that, that, that however you may come to faith, your story won't be mine. You might look at my story and think, I'd like to have some events like that. I don't want you to have my story. I want you to have your story. I want you to see how God has shown up in your life and how God is pursuing you. I just share my story to say this. God chases after us. And you might progressively grow into faith and one day find yourself saying, I believe and I can't quite pinpoint where that happened. Or you might have a dramatic moment like St. Paul on the road to Damascus where it's like night to, to light and, and you just believe. But however it is that you might come to faith, 
It's just the beginning. Coming to faith is just the beginning. So what is faith? Faith is believing God and drawing near to him through his son. Faith is believing God and all that he said about Jesus Christ and drawing near to him through his son. Let's look at the author's definition once again. See if there's anything else we can pull out from it. Now faith is the assurance, could be confidence, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is assurance, confidence, conviction. Now, if you're just exploring faith or you've been on the journey for a while, maybe you feel some tension here because you probably have questions. You might have hard questions. You might have doubts. You might be thinking, how could faith be assurance? I don't always feel assured. Here's the thing, and I want to be clear about this. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is not doubt. Another person highlighted in the cloud of witnesses is Sarah. I love Sarah, and I'm so glad she's in the cloud of witnesses. And if you don't know the story of Sarah and Abraham, I'll just recap it for you briefly. God appeared to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you in such a way that all the nations of the world will be blessed. I'm going to give you a child. And God appeared to them again, to Abraham and Sarah, and said, I'm going to give you a child. And Sarah laughed at God. She laughed at him. She practically laughed in his face. Partly because of the seemingly ridiculous nature of it. Partly because she was well into her 90s and had been barren her whole life. And partly because the promise just seemed impossible. She laughed. She doubted. Yet she still conceived Isaac. She named that child Isaac, which means laughter. And through Isaac, through that line of descendants, years and years later, Jesus Christ came in to the world, God really did bless all of the nations through Abraham and Sarah. But she had doubt. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. The social commentator Oz Guinness says, <coughs> if ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. If doubt is eventually justified, we were believing what clearly was not worth believing. But if doubt is answered, our faith has grown stronger. It knows God more certainly and it can enjoy God more deeply. There's place for doubt in faith. But having met many of you for pastoral meetings, I want to clarify something about doubt. Doubt is not a virtue. Faith, hope, and love are a virtue. Doubt is not a virtue. That doesn't mean doubt is bad, but it is not a pinnacle of character development. If you have doubt, difficult questions, or challenges that you're just not sure what to do with, by all means, bring it up. Unearth it. Talk about it. Share it with others. Don't pretend they're not there. Don't push it down and suppress the questions that are gnawing at you. That's just going to set you up for an existential crisis down the road. But if you have doubt, don't be passive about it. Don't just ask tough questions for the sake of asking tough questions. I meet too many people who do that. That's the easy way out. Take action. If you have doubt, search for answers. Wrestle. Seek understanding. Talk to people. Meet new people. Explore. Let that doubt be a motivation for you 
to learn and to discover. Because doubt that remains perpetually unaddressed, or in other words, questions that are just asked for the sake of asking, erodes faith. And if it goes unaddressed for too long, it only worsens. But doubt that leads to understanding causes your faith to grow all the more. Faith gives us assurance, even if we have doubts. As the author writes, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, or the confidence of things hoped for. So what is this assurance then? What do we have assurance about? Some suggest uh, that this word assurance could be translated title deed. Faith is owning the title deed to the promises, to the things that we hope for. Ansley, she owns a, a dollhouse, a beautiful pink Doug and Melissa dollhouse. It's the child equivalent of owning a home in West Vancouver. We had to take out a mortgage to buy it. Uh, and then Maggie came along, and, and Ansley really struggled with sharing her dollhouse with Maggie. And so we took out a second mortgage and bought Maggie her own dollhouse. But when it arrived, it turned out to be a doll castle, which proved problematic because now Ansley wanted the castle. And so I had to sit down, young Ansley, and explain to her the concept of title deed. I wrote up a little piece of paper that said, belongs to Maggie, and I said, Maggie has the title deed to the castle. This is Maggie's castle, and she gets to decide if she wants to share it with you or not, because it is hers. She, it's her property. And, and this is especially helpful for Maggie, because it gives her assurance that in the case of a dispute, she can prove this is truly hers. She has the title deed. The author of Hebrews says, faith is your title deed of the things that's hoped for. This is important because you're going to have moments of dispute where you wonder if what is hoped for is really yours or really possible. Faith is your title deed that it is truly yours. That you have a rightful um, entitlement almost to possess these things that you hope for. That's why you can have assurance Faith births this conviction that you have ownership of God's promises, that they're promises not just made abstractly, but promises made to you. But what are they? What are these promises? Consider Abraham, Sarah's husband. He's another example in the cloud of witnesses. He lived by faith, and when God called him, he left his home. He left comfort. He left security. He left his extended family. He left everything. He left not knowing where he was going. He left not knowing where he was going. And he lived on the assumption that the heavenly homeland and the promise of God's city were real. He had the title deed of a city that was yet to come. He had the title deed of a promise that was made to him. And so he lived in light of that promise. He went wherever God said because he held on to the title deed of the promise. Which is why the author writes in verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith. <clears throat> Enoch, Sarah, Abraham, and others. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. Do you see, our hope is not that God will fulfill all our whims and fancy. Our hope is, is not for health, wealth, and prosperity. Our hope in life isn't even the expectation that everything will unfold according to our dreams. Our hope is that God who made the promises also keeps his promises. 
The promise is a better city, a city prepared for us. This is a way of talking about the future. This is a way of talking about the new creation, that God will remake all of this matter. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and it will be overflowing with life and justice and peace and goodness and so much more. The promise of this city is that all who dwell there have eternal life, everlasting love inescapable goodness permeating all of creation. This is what the author means by a city that is heavenly, a country that is not yet here. Our hope then is not a perhaps. Faith allows us to have the assurance, the confidence, the conviction, because God is faithful and he keeps his promises. You see, your assurance then has nothing to do with the quality of your own faith. Your assurance has everything to do with the quality of the one who made the promise. You see, if your faith is weak, that doesn't negate the promise. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Which means our assurance of faith reminds us that whatever we leave behind, however hard or difficult it may be on this side of eternity, whatever we give up in the pursuit of Christ, we always gain infinitely more. Yes, in the here and now, in this world, the author says we live as strangers and exiles. We live as oddities, people who live by faith, people who live with a hope and promises, people who give up the comforts of this world to pursue Jesus. But our title deed of this heavenly country, this future city, it changes the way we live here and now. We don't abandon this world. We don't give up on this world. Rather, we live in this world as citizens of the world to come. Finally, last point. The author says faith is our commendation. Faith is what commends us. Look at verse 2. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Or verse 4. By faith, Abel was commended as righteous. Or verse 5. That by faith, Enoch was commended as having pleased God. We're so prone to resist this. The only thing God wants of you is faith. Faith is all God desires. You can't be righteous, that is, right before God in a right, life-giving relationship with God. You can't be righteous without faith. You can't please God without faith. Now, you can spend your whole life trying to live as a good person with the hope that if there turns out to be a God... Maybe that'll be enough. Maybe the scales will tip in your favor. But nothing you strive to do or achieve can commend you to God. And nothing you do by your own strength can make you pleasing to God. The only way you become righteous before God, the only way you become pleasing to God is by faith drawing near to Him through His Son. You see, when you have faith in Jesus Christ... The divine words that God spoke over his son, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. They're shared with you. When you have faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, you're commended. You're forgiven. God makes you righteous. He's pleased with you. And all that it takes is faith. And so, the author says, if we draw near to God with faith, through his son, God will reward you. God will reward you. 
Now, what's the reward? What's the reward? The reward of drawing near to God is not the blessing we might receive. It's not the things we might inherit. It's not some milestones that we hope to hit in our life. The great reward of our faith is God. The great reward of our faith is knowing Jesus Christ. And that has one of two reactions, doesn't it? That's either good news or a letdown. You think, really? I'm going to endure through my life to know this Jesus who I'm still struggling to decide if I even want to believe in him. The reward of my faith is him? Yes. Yes. The reward of your faith is being with the one who loves you so much that he came into this world to be with you. He drew near to you so you can draw near to him. The reward of your faith is being in a relationship that is life-giving and full of love, a relationship with the one who has the power to reorder this entire universe around goodness and peace. When this grips you, when you see that your ultimate end is Jesus himself, of course you begin to live by faith. Of course you start to live for him alone because that's what you're ultimately going to do, so why not do it now? Why not reorder your whole life around the one that you're going to inherit? But I want to speak to you lastly, if you're the person right now who sees that reward and you think, I don't know. Or if you feel like your, your faith is weak and floundering and, and you're not sure that you can muster up any more faith. You're not sure you have the faith that is good enough for that reward. First, Take comfort that in the Gospels we have a prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm so glad that's in Scripture. But also listen to the author of Hebrews who says, fix your eyes on Jesus. At the end of this chapter, fix your eyes on Jesus. We've been considering all these people who hadn't yet received the promise, who were looking forward, who had less than what you have now. And in faith, they... They fix their eyes on God and we're to fix our eyes on Jesus who came and who will return. And fixing on our, our eyes on Jesus means we don't fix our eyes on ourselves. See, our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is not in the quality of our faith, whether it is weak or whether it is strong. You see, we're, that's difficult for us because we are a narcissistic society. We are obsessed with ourselves. We really are. We're obsessed with life going the way we want. We're obsessed with getting the jobs that we think will be most fulfilling. We are hopelessly turned in on ourselves. And the gift of faith is, is to say, stop looking at your own navel. Be liberated from that and fix your eyes on Jesus. And the mystery of faith is as you gaze upon Jesus, as you come to see his goodness and his mercy and his grace, as you see his love and his compassion, as you comprehend what he accomplished for you on the cross, as you see that he is what commends you before God, faith follows suit. As you fix your eyes on Jesus, you receive the gift of faith and it grows in relation to your sight of him. The more you behold him, the more your faith grows in response to him. The more that your vision of him conforms to what is truly real about reality, the more your faith follows suit. So don't fix your eyes on your faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
The good news is if you put your faith in Jesus, you discover this beautiful mystery that he was pursuing you long before you pursued him. And that if you knock, he answers. He's already there. He desires to be found. He has drawn near to you so that you can draw near to him.